Well, hello again, and welcome to the second part of our series titled The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Now, I hope that you all have had a good week and, and that the Lord is continuing to keep you safe and healthy and, and joyful. Now, let me pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, I pray for your spirit to be upon every word that I speak. I pray that you prepare the heart of anyone who hears this message. I pray that your truth will be evident and effective. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, last week, we learned where the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil originated, and, and how it is related to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life that, that is mentioned in First John. You may remember that, that I referred to this as the unholy trinity, an unholy trinity that is in direct opposition to the will of God. Now, uh, before we get into the main body of the message today, uh, I want to share another way that we can refer to these three sources of temptation. Well, last week's introduction was pretty loaded with, with a, a lot of stuff, and, and I didn't want to overburden you with, with too much information, but I do really want you all to, to understand another way of looking at these three sources of temptation. Uh, this unholy trinity can be described using three ism words. I-S-M, ism words. The lust of the eyes is materialism. The lust of the flesh is hedonism. And the boastful pride of life is egoism. Materialism, hedonism, and egoism. And that's it's pretty easy to remember. Uh, this week's topic is going to be the lust of the flesh, or hedonism. Hedonism comes from the Greek word for pleasure, and it refers to a school of thought. The hedonistic philosophy is based on the idea that life is composed of only two parts, seeking pleasure and avoiding suffering. They would further argue that a, a person's well-being can be accurately assessed through the ratio of pleasure to suffering. So anyway, I, I just wanted to give you all a, a quick definition of that word because it's not one that, that comes up a lot in your ordinary day-to-day -day conversation. So we will begin by reading our source scripture, which is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot upon a stone. 
And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Well, not surprisingly, in the scripture that we just read and in the parallel account that occurs in Luke's gospel, the first temptation that the devil offers Jesus is one that appeals to the desire of the flesh. Jesus had been out in the wilderness for 40 days and he was hungry. And the devil knew that Jesus was hungry. And he also knew that Jesus had miraculous power. And I found that interesting because according to scripture, Jesus had yet to perform any miracles in public. How did the devil know this about Jesus? One explanation, and one that I thought sounded feasible, is that the devil had heard what God said when Jesus was baptized by, by John the Baptist. You remember, uh, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the voice of God is heard from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love. Well, regardless of how he had gotten the information, the devil knew what Jesus was capable of, and he had he tried to tempt Jesus into showing his power. But Jesus was not about to do anything just because the devil told him to. No matter how good that bread would have tasted after fasting for 40 days, Jesus rebukes the devil by quoting scripture at him, and the devil goes off to prepare his next challenge. Giving in to the devil's temptation would have been a sin, a sin that is considered a lust of the flesh. What is the lust of the flesh? In the most simple terms, lust of the flesh is desire gone wrong. Okay, Desire gone wrong. We all have desires. God has created us that way. God has given us thoughts, desires, feelings, imagination, the power to make decisions. In fact, the word of the Lord has instructed us in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When does desire become lust? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We all exist as spirit and flesh. We are a physical body and then a, a spirit or a soul that dwells within us. Our flesh, that is, our bodies, are merely vessels to contain our spirits while we walk around the earth during this part of our lives. Our spirit directs the body. It tells it when to eat, when to sleep, when to watch TV, what to watch on TV. You know, you get the idea. And this is a pretty nice arrangement, and, and it works pretty well for most of the time. However, and this is a big however, there is a problem. If our spirits were computer programs, you would say that there is a bug in the system. Our spirits have a virus. 
Long before COVID-19 came around, each and every one of us was already sick. Our spirits are infected with sin. And that sin, like any other virus, wants to multiply and control the host organism. Our sin nature will hijack a perfectly natural and normal desire and use it to make our bodies act in ways that are in direct opposition to God's will. Lust occurs when a natural desire gets perverted and twisted by our sinful nature. This uh, this happens behind the scenes in our own minds, uh, but it produces an outward display of sinful behavior. The struggle to prevent a corrupted desire from becoming sin is a struggle that we will all have to fight as long as, as we live on this earth. No one is exempt. Not even the heroes of the faith, like the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he, uh, Paul happened to uh, say in, in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That sounds terrible and discouraging. If somebody like Paul can't seem to get it together, what what chance do I have? How do I deal with a spirit that is in rebellion against itself and against God? We were, you know, we will discuss that later. Uh, for now, I want us to take a look at how corrupted desires will manifest themselves, what they look like, and how they can make us behave. When I was researching this message with the intention of compiling a list of natural human desires, I immediately thought about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you have never taken any psychology or sociology classes, then this is probably a new term for you. However, if you have had those kinds of classes, then you're more than likely already familiar with the concept. If not, uh, I'm going to give a little brief overview of Abraham Maslow and his contribution to psychology. He was an American uh, psychologist, and he lived from 1908 to 1970. And he was born back in Brooklyn, New York, and he died in Menlo Park, California. Yeah, right up the street from us. He was out jogging one day, and the Lord called him home. But over the, the course of his career, he taught at Brooklyn College, he taught at Brandeis University, and he also taught at Cornell. And his most well-known contribution to science is the idea of self-actualization, which he defined as achieving the fullest use of one's talents and interests, and the need to become everything that one is capable of becoming. Dr. Maslow created a a five-layered pyramid-shaped diagram to represent a structure that he referred to as the hierarchy of needs. At the bottom, or the base of the pyramid, were the basic physiological needs, uh, such as food, air, shelter, sleep, clothing, uh, the need to reproduce. On the next layer, you will find uh, safety needs. This is personal security, employment, resources, health, property. 
Uh, above this is the layer that he calls love and belonging. And this it contains friendship, intimacy, family, and the sense of, of belonging. Second from the top, we would find the self-esteem level, which is populated by recognition, status, freedom, and strength. And at the very top of the pyramid, you would find self-actualization, the environment where a person can truly be all that they can be. See, Dr. Maslow had obviously never heard a commercial for the U.S. Army, but Maslow's Pyramid gives us a handy list of human needs and desires that we can use to to illustrate how they're co-opted and perverted by the sin of lust. Now, you know, there's no way that I can go and cover each and every item on the pyramid uh, right now. So I would urge you to, uh, if you have the time and the desire, to go online and find the, the pyramid, you know, find an image, and then try to come up with examples of what those natural desires become when they're corrupted by sin. I think it would be an interesting exercise. So, we're going to start at the bottom of the pyramid and, and work our way up, taking an example or, or two as, as we go to each layer. Uh, we'll start with the most basic of needs, the need for food. The most recent data that I was able to find indicates that 70% of all Americans are overweight. And I have to include uh, myself in that statistic. I, I have a love-hate uh, relationship with cookies. I love cookies, and I hate it when they're all gone. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I, I heard a comedian do a routine about the dining habits in America and, and how crazy they must appear to people in other countries, especially in the countries that have populations that are suffering from starvation and, and famine. How, how would we explain, for example, the concept of an appetizer to a starving person? You know, say, oh, well, no, that's not the food. That's, that's the food that we eat before the food gets here. And don't, don't even get me started on the, the bread and the, the chips and salsa that will often appear the moment you set down. See, th we have a very cavalier attitude towards food in this country. You know, it's something that for most people is just taken for granted. We go into the supermarket expecting to see variety. Variety even among examples of the same product. As a result, I believe our, our hearts have become hardened and we've become wasteful. We buy more than we can use because it's a better deal and, and we end up throwing it away when it spoils. If any of you shop at, at Costco, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. No one needs a gallon of three bean salad. Trust me on that one. The abundance of food has resulted in a paradox. Despite the knowledge that, that there will be food to eat tomorrow, far too many of us approach each meal as if it were our last. Sin enters our hearts and tells us that we need more. Millions of advertising dollars are spent each and every year to convince us that bigger is better when it comes to what we eat and what we drink. 
you know, we're born with a desire. And, and sin has twisted that desire, so we don't really need the convincing. All that advertising really does is just show us our options. Our, our desire to consume more than we need is, is sin. If we're eating more than we need to stay alive, it's sin. It is a sin that will lead us to ignore our own mortality, to satisfy a perceived hunger. We're not really hungry, but, but our corrupted flesh demands to be fed. Heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, pancreatitis, certain types of cancer, osteoarthritis, gout, infertility. Those are just some of the preventable medical conditions associated with being overweight. Preventable. Yet, here we are, whistling through the graveyard with a McDouble in one hand and a big gulp full of soda in the other. Well, now that I've ruined everyone's plans for lunch, uh, let's move on to our next item. The need to reproduce. The drive for sex. Now, this, this really isn't a surprise because in our popular language, the word lust is most commonly associated with this desire. You know, it's, it's absolutely necessary for the survival of the species. And because of that, God made it pleasurable. Well, like anything else that's pleasurable, it's a target. It's a target for, for sin's corrupting influence. Sin has twisted this desire to the extreme. If it feels good, do it. Reflects the attitude of a society that has relegated the traditional views of of marriage and monogamy to a lower status. A status of simply being one option among many. Pornography. Pornography is more mainstream than ever. Sex as a spectator sport is at the center of a $12 billion a year industry. Two and a half billion of those dollars are being brought right into our homes, right into our homes through the internet. There is an award show each year that is broadcast on the Showtime network that celebrates notable achievements in adult film industry. Notable achievements. The effects of this mainstreaming uh, can be observed in, in other forms of the media. There are images and words that show up on network television that just just oh, a few years ago we would have only been seen on a cable network like Showtime or HBO. The stain is spreading, people. It's spreading, and it's showing no signs of slowing down. You know, sex sells, and the advertisers know it. Well, moving up to the next layer of the pyramid, we are going to talk about hoarding. And not the pathological hoarding that that we see on reality television that, that is typically a symptom of an underlying mental illness. The hoarding that we are going to talk about is the result of sin, twisting an otherwise normal desire, the desire for personal security. 
Other than a relatively brief time spent in the Garden of Eden, man has had to contend with external threats to his well-being. He has been at the mercy of wild animals, of inclement weather, and most seriously of all, other men. So, we built shelters, and, and when we could afford to do so, we, we built bigger shelters. The desire to feel safe and secure eventually led to the construction of stone castles and, and to the formation and the maintenance of personal armies. You know, what is mine is mine, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep it. In fact, not only am I going to keep it, but I'm going to keep adding on to it for as long as I can. Now, the age of stone castles is behind us. Well, well, kind of. There are still some obscenely large houses being built, but for the most part, the hoarding of wealth has become a new bastion of security. In the United States, the top 1% of the population holds over $25 trillion in wealth. That is more than the combined total of the bottom 80% of the population, and it actually exceeds all of the goods and services produced in the United States in the year 2018. And now, you know, I, I know I'm taking a risk. I, I don't want to sound like a, a cross between Bernie Sanders and, and Robin Hood, but I have to ask, how much is enough? I can't imagine th that there would be a significant lifestyle change between having $100 billion and only $50 billion. Why would anyone hold on to such a fortune when there is an obvious need for improvements in the world? It is a truly savage inequality that wealth is hoarded in countries where people can't even get clean drinking water. That someone can buy a $250 million yacht in a country where some of its citizens have to choose between having health care or providing food for their children. In the words of Mahatma Gandhi, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. Well, by that metric, we have failed. Sin has corrupted our system from the top down. I have to wonder what the world would look like if the top 1% could read and truly understand what our Lord Jesus had to say in Luke 12. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and, and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Ignoring the world from the inside of a castle, whether it's literal or otherwise, is not 
how God wants any of us to live. You know, I am sure that most of us are familiar with that phrase, no man is an island. This quote is taken from a larger work called Devotions, written by John Donne in 1624. Donne was a poet and a priest who, who wrote passionately about the need for people to live in community. Don felt so strongly about this idea because he knew that God felt strongly about it. From that moment in the garden when, when he created a partner for Adam, God has provided ways for us to avoid isolation. He, he created the family, he, he created marriage, and he created the church because he wants us to live and thrive in the company of people who love and support us. God has given us all a, a desire in our hearts to, to be part of something larger than ourselves. What happens when that desire gets corrupted by sin? Well, that leads us into the next item on our list, and we're going to head up to the next level on the pyramid, and we're going to talk about love and belonging. Now, to repeat that earlier question, what happens when the desire for love and belonging gets corrupted by sin? Well, in the words of an old country song, we start looking for love in all the wrong places. The desire to feel loved and needed is powerful. More so than, than its position on Maslow, Maslow's pyramid would, would lead us to believe. I have no problem in saying that, that there are times when the need to be in a loving relationship is the strongest desire that a person can have in their heart. Lives have been lost Kingdoms have been surrendered, families have been ripped apart, wars have been waged, all in the name of love, or what was passing for love at the time. When sin gets a hold of love, the, the end result bears little resemblance to the, to the real thing. Love gets transformed into obsession, an obsession that consumes the self and creates tunnel vision, everything, including God, will be ignored in the pursuit of that desire. Closely related to our need to be loved is the need to feel like we belong. For most of us, uh, our need for that is met through through families and through church, through our friends, and, and through all manner of clubs and organizations. It is amazing how many groups are available for like-minded people. Like-minded people who can get together to share their common interests. Do you have an interest in antique doorknobs? There's a club for that. How about Renaissance lute music? Got you covered. And I'm not even talking about what's available online. I, I did a little research and discovered that there are one and a half million groups on Facebook. One and a half million interest groups on Facebook. And you're allowed to join up to 6,000 of them. 6,000! I, I don't think that I could come up with 50 groups that I would want to join. But people want to belong. You know, it's very unfortunate 
but not everybody gets to grow up with a sense of belonging. For any number of reasons, a lot of young people arrive at adolescence and they feel that they have nowhere to go. In in psychosocial terms, this stage of development is known as identity versus role confusion. Who am I and where do I belong? These are questions that that are often answered by joining a gang. And we're not talking about the antique doorknob collecting gang. Criminal gangs recruit heavily from this demographic. Young people are given a place to belong. They're given a job. And for many, it's the first step on a journey that, that will lead to drug use, criminal behavior, incarceration, and death. You know, it's pretty... It's pretty easy to see why the the lust of the flesh is one of the devil's most powerful tools. Uh, You know, as the old saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. We can't outrun and we can't hide from our own flesh. It's not some part of us that we can just, you know, snap off and, and leave at home before we head out into the world. It is our body, our heart, and our minds all put together. And wherever we are, Our desires will be right there with us. Well, you know, if we can't outrun it, how do we fight it? What can we do to fight it? Well, we start by looking at how Jesus responded to his temptation. Jesus went right to the scripture. He tells the devil that that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus made it clear that whatever temporary physical nourishment that is gained by eating the bread, it's nothing compared to the spiritual nourishment that God provides us with. Jesus uh, was quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. And and when I turned my Bible to that verse, I found that the chapter heading was titled, Do Not Forget the Lord. When we come across a situation where the Bible is quoting another part of the Bible, it's very helpful to, to read a quote in its original source, or excuse me, in its original context. Read what comes before and after it. In this case, preceding the verse that Jesus quoted is the admonition to remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. God will never lead us into temptation, but he will lead us out. God wants us to know that he will provide for us, that that there is nothing that this world offers. No matter how bad we may think we need it, there is nothing out there that is going to be better than what he can give us. God is saying to us, look back on the life that I have given you. Just look back. Do you really think that fulfilling this particular desire is going to make anything better? I have loved you and taken care of you, and I will continue to love you and take care of you. Now, get your mind off of this foolishness and get it back on me where it belongs. God wants us to remember who he is, and he wants us to remember who we are. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A part of God lives in our body, and we have to keep that house clean. Not just when company is coming over. We have to keep our house clean all the time. Do we need any more evidence for this? Well, I'm going to offer it anyway. This is from 1 Corinthians 6. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Lust of the flesh is not strictly limited to immoral actions. Our thoughts can be just as damaging. Jesus taught us that even to look at a woman with lust in our heart was considered adultery. Because of the constant barrage of sexually charged images that that we face on a daily basis, we have to develop strategies to, to guard our hearts against lustful thoughts. A pastor friend of mine had a technique that he called the bounce. That is, when we are watching a, a TV or a movie or even just driving down the street and we see something that starts to pull our eyes in that direction, you just make your eyes bounce off of it. Yeah, sure, you know, you saw it, you acknowledged it, but you didn't dwell on it. You didn't stare so hard that you wrecked your car or caused your spouse to, to hit you with her purse. So consider this little story. It's about two monks that were traveling through the countryside once upon a time. Brother Gregory and Brother Matthew were on their way to the market when they discovered that the bridge into town had been washed out. Standing on the shore of the river was a very beautiful young woman. She was dressed in her wedding finery. She was dressed in her wedding finery and she was weeping uncontrollably. Whatever shall I do? cried the young woman. It is my wedding day and there is no way that I can cross that river without soiling my wedding dress. Fear not, said Brother Gregory, for I am strong enough and tall enough that I can carry you across that river. Brother Gregory picks the woman up in his arms, and he carries her across the river and sets her feet upon the ground. With heartfelt thanks, she heads off toward the church, and Gregory and Matthew head off toward the town. After several minutes of complete silence, Gregory asks his companion if there's anything wrong. Well, Matthew replies, I just don't understand why you did what you did. Gregory is somewhat taken aback, and, and he says, whatever are you talking about? That that woman, that, that young, beautiful woman, the, the one that you touched and carried and stuff, how could you? You know that, that we are sworn to life of chastity, and you have sinned, and you need to repent immediately. Have I now, said Gregory. I picked up that woman and I carried her across the river, and I set her down on the other side. You, however, are still carrying her in your mind. The moral of that story 
is that we shouldn't carry things around in our mind that are not beneficial and pleasing to ourselves and to God. To ourselves and to God. The kingdom is full of of beautiful things to think about. We do not need to dwell on anything that is unworthy. Embrace community. I know that it's hard right now. It's very difficult. But we have to do everything that we can to keep our sense of community alive. We are stronger together. And that strength provides an example for, for the young people to follow. As I mentioned earlier, young people are faced with very serious choices. I, re- I remember vividly how confusing and strange my life became when I entered junior high school, wondering how I fit in, where I fit in. And sometimes, do I even fit in at all? You know, our little church has been blessed with a dedicated group of people who have made it their mission to shepherd young people, to give them a a safe place where they can be themselves, a, a place where they're loved and valued, a place where somebody listens when they ask the big questions. So right now, I, I just want to give a, a shout-out to our people. A shout-out to Christine Kimmel, to Mike Reed, to Annette Jackson, to Mike Conley, to Kellyanne Conley, and to Ian Barrow. These folks are on the front line every week, you know, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And, and they can use all the help and encouragement that we can give them. Whenever things do uh, get back to normal, whatever that is going to look like, I would urge all of us to to talk to someone from our junior high or our high school group and see how we can get ourselves involved in that ministry. Getting ourselves involved is a win-win-win situation. Our our team will be strengthened and encouraged. Our hearts and minds will be focused on the kingdom. And the young people will be exposed to, to more examples of what living the Christian life really looks like. Now, in closing, I want to add that that just about everything that I mentioned in last week's wrap-up applies to this week as well. Uh, Keep praying, stay in the Word, and share your burdens with one another. You know, God is is knitting our hearts together through all of this. Uh, This situation is, is not pleasant, it's not ideal, but God is at the center of this. Seek Him. And when you find him, you'll find peace. And you will most likely discover that that you are a, a lot stronger than you thought you were. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord of all creation, we come before you now broken and sinful and seeking your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have given us, and we humbly ask for your continued provision. We pray that your name be glorified in all that we say and do. Let us be a light that shines your truth and love into an ever-darkening world. Lord, we, we pray your protection upon our church, upon our nation, and over all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto each and every one of you. May the Lord turn his face to make it shine upon you 
and grant you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay joyful. I love you all, and I'll see you next Sunday. We thought this was going to be over. Finally, after all this waiting, things were going to go back to the way they used to be. Things were going to be good again. These restrictions were going to be taken off of us, and we could go back to enjoying the freedoms that we always used to. Now we could gather together and worship the true God without the threat of rules being put on us from outside our faith. And then we saw all our hope nailed and dying on a cross. This might have been some of the thoughts on the Apostle's mind, or perhaps at first you thought I was describing you and I and the circumstances that we're going through today. Hope and disappointment is common throughout the ages, but here at the Lord's table we can exchange our disappointment for His hope, made possible by His sacrifice on a cross for our behalf. Whatever it is you need today, bring it here. Before we take the elements, let's open up our hearts to Him. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Father, thank you that all of our hope, all of our eternal security, and our ultimate victory has been sealed with the sacrifice made by your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful, Father, and we look to you each and every day for strength and our hope with everything that we need to deal with in our lives today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.